So welcome to the Adventures in Trade podcast, the podcast for the UK trade brought to you by Powered Now. Powered Now is an app and software for busy trade companies. Whether you're working alone or in a team, invoice, quote, and keep on top of your important jobs and paperwork with Powered Now. Now, we must be crazy because listeners to Adventures in Trade can get an extended trial of the software. And if you subscribe for a limited time, we're giving away a free Sum Up card reader. Yeah, free, so you can accept credit and debit cards on the job. To check your eligibility, head to powerednow.com forward slash adventure. That's powerednow.com forward slash adventure. Hi, everyone. This is Ben, the host of Adventures in Trade the podcast from Powered Now. My guest today can only be described as a force for nature in the trade world and someone I think every trade person can learn from. He was formerly the managing director for Williams, the plumbing and heating merchants, but he held that gig for only 36 years. He's now chairman at Williams and the founder of the amazing non-for-profit organization VanWatch. My guest today is the one and only Ray Stafford. Ray, welcome to Adventures in Trade. How are you doing, Ray? Oh, hi, Ben. Yeah, I'm here. Thanks very much for, for having me on the show. And uh, I think probably you should send me an invoice for public relations after after the recording. Yeah, we. I seem to get quite a lot of comments on my intros to this podcast. So yeah, I'm think, thinking maybe there's a side gig for me in bigging up people in the trade. Maybe I could be in a sort of an announcer, perhaps, for the people. A small correction, in fact, if I may, uh, although I worked at Williams for 37 years, I was uh, I was not MD. I didn't go in as MD. I uh, I got to that post in the early 2000s. Okay, so you worked your way up. Well, I tell you what, that, that's actually going to be my first question. So why don't, why don't we dive into that? Let's start off, if you don't mind, talking about Williams. So you moved up into that post, 37 years, and you're now sitting on the board. I had a quick look at your websites and you have 49 branches now. And we were just joking before I pressed the record in Zoom that I, I said that every two minutes I look at LinkedIn and I find that William's roping up yet another branch. You're super busy. And it's an interesting time, isn't it, for plumbing and heating merchants. There's big changes all over the place. But William seems to be going from strength to strength. So my first question, right, what's the secret? What's the William's secret? If I, if I had to pick on one thing, Ben, it would probably be we know who our customers are. So every, everybody who joins Williams up, up until I retired a while ago would come to an induction where I and my business partner would explain our business model to them. And we would define for them our customer type. So we focus on trade customers, which have between one and five employees. Absolutely everything about the Williams business is focused on that customer type. So we don't serve retail customers at all. And although we don't turn away large contractors, we don't do anything in our business model to address their particular needs. We call this customer type the one to five. So if you imagine one of our competitors, they're probably trying to deal with retail customers, smaller independent trade businesses and large contractors, all with the same resource set. The best one in the world, that's a very difficult thing to do. So the, the Williams model, do the best you can be the absolutely the best you can for that target customer. We stuck with that model for 20 or 30 years seems to be working for us. Yeah, I remember when we met a couple of years back, you were really passionate about trade only, which is very different, isn't it, from your competitors? So if you don't work in the trade, can I go to Williams at all? Can I buy anything from Branch or is it completely off the reservation for me? Absolutely not. As part of the induction I mentioned earlier, I would 
only half jokingly explained to new colleagues that uh, putting your hand in the till and knowingly selling retail were crimes of sort of similar gravity at Williams. So no, retail is an absolute no-no for us. Yeah, and actually Williams is completely fixed price as well, isn't it? So the price you see on the shelf is the price you're going to pay, which I think probably just brings a hell of a lot of reassurance to people that are in that bracket. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, our customer type, that one to five that I was describing, they don't have the benefit of a large procurement department. And the accounts department is usually the tradesperson or their partner maybe on the dining room table on a Sunday afternoon. So if they don't have to waste time negotiating prices, and at the other end of the process, the invoice is going to be right because we don't have many options to get it wrong, that takes out of their business life unnecessary pain yeah allows them to focus on doing what they do yeah which makes which makes complete sense i had a great conversation with john godwin from travis perkins and one of the episodes of adventures in trade who are the complete opposite of that i I talk in that podcast about this huge flaw of people who are just doing pricing that's all they're doing i mean huge organization of course but and i think just for people that are in the one to five maybe slightly bigger camp that's again it's it's horrible it's confusing for people they want to know what their costs are to do business and i think that clarity is something we hear that a lot powered now so and you and williams are doing great so it must be working absolutely seems to work so far anyway excellent you're still on the board of williams right so you're still working for williams yeah i'm chairman of the board for my sins but you're doing something different now as well you've started this organization i alluded to in the intro called van watch and I think every trade person listening to this can relate to that, right? So tell us, what is VanWatch? Okay, so VanWatch is a not-for-profit organisation that is designed to bring together all sorts of people throughout the industry to reduce the frequency and the impact of the theft of tools, primarily from vans. So if I could just take you back a little bit, so through connecting it back to the Williams story... Williams have had a number of campaigns that they've run. There's one called Tool Angel, which we launched about three years ago now, which is a free loan scheme. So if if a plumber or heating engineer has their tools stolen, Tool Angel, operated by Williams, will lend them, no obligation, free of charge, tools for a few weeks. That's That's aimed at them getting them back on their feet, getting them back working again while they sort out with insurance and so forth. We've, we've also become involved, along with the National Business Crime Centre and Sussex, West Midlands, Hampshire Police, with tool marking initiatives. So tool marking helps the traceability of tools. It helps the police get convictions when they find caches of stolen tools. And, of course, increases the chance that, that you'll be reunited with your tools if they're stolen. So this also was a Williams initiative, more in um, 2022 and, and going into 2023. Brilliant. But the marking of tools is really interesting, isn't it? Because if they can't be sold on, it makes the entire theft pointless, doesn't it? And you know, and it's got to be such a simple thing to do, right? You would think so. However, when we check out the tradesmen, when we survey them, we find that a relatively few of them mark them in a thorough way. So there's marking in terms of you can scratch your postcode or your phone number on it. But the using a, a marketing system, a commercial marketing system backed up by registration, that might be that you register the tools of the manufacturer under a warranty scheme or that you use something like Immobilize or Select DNA, one of the commercial marketing systems. 
that above all that the police have access to. So mm. usually when the police recover stolen tools, it's not because they've chased the thieves down the road, pulled them over and got them in the in sort of red handed. It's often investigating another crime. They will come across a lockup or a container somewhere, open the doors, find it's full of tools that they're pretty sure are stolen. But of course, mm. the CPS won't take that to court and it's very hard to get a conviction unless you can close the loop and prove it. So this is where the marking initiatives come into their own. I guess it's not just the loss of tools and livelihood. And I, w- I want to talk about the economics of that in a moment, but it's also the damage, right? We've all seen these videos on Facebook of vans just having their doors ripped off or their locks drilled. I mean, it just, it must be so distressing for those companies that are involved. It is. And we see four categories of loss, Ben, in that. So there's obviously there's the tools that are stolen. There's frequently damage to the van, which can sometimes be actually worse than the loss of the tools. Then there's the loss of work. So a tradesman, tradeswoman was going to go to work that day and do some stuff. Quite often that can run into several days of losses, maybe even more. So those are the financial downsides. Then there's the emotional mental health hit. It's it's a lonely life being a self-employed tradesperson. And when something like this happens, I think it's particularly hard. Those of us who work in larger teams at least have the emotional support of our co-workers. Probably the boss will pick up the tab for replacing tools. But yeah. if you're self-employed or maybe in a small partnership, you don't have those sources of support. So yeah, that's an important additional angle on it. Yeah. And I think for anybody listening to this podcast that's doesn't quite understand the scale of this. I did some research before we spoke and I found a really good survey from VW Commercial Vehicles. And it claims, I was going to ask you if you think this is right, actually, right? It claims that more than a third of van drivers in the UK have fallen victim to this and it's growing exponentially. So in the past year, I think they said it's gone up by 30%. That seems a huge number. Is that right? Yes, our information suggests that in any given year, there is roughly a 10% chance you'll have your tools stolen. Certain trades are more at risk. Kitchen fitters, electricians, tree surgeons seem to be particularly at risk. The the latter, of course, have some very expensive toolkits in their their vans. And a statistic that might interest you is you are 13 times more likely to have your van broken into than your house broken into. (laughs) And since you're three times more likely to have your contents of your house insured than the contents of your van, you're looking at a 39 times greater likelihood of an uninsured loss of tools from the van than break into your house. That's pretty heavy stuff. If, if I look at the cost across the financial cost against across the three categories I mentioned earlier of lost tools, damaged vans and the foregone work, it stands at roughly a million pounds a day. So this is significant stuff. Across the whole of the UK? Across the UK. So wow. imagine, if you will, that the high street banks were having a million pound bank robbery every day of the week, every, every week of the year. Yeah, you would do something about I'd it, wouldn't you? <laughs> they would. There would be special police task forces and yeah. questions in the house, and it would be a big news. Yeah. It's just because the victims are fragmented and voiceless, it goes below the radar. And that's one of the things we set up Van Watch to, uh, to address. I saw a very interesting article in one of the mags, and it was talking about where this happens. And obviously, outside your home is going to be pretty damn common, because that's where your van's going to be parked most of the time. But I was interesting to read that it was hotel car parks 
are apparently the worst place for tool theft. Hotel car parks outside suppliers, fast food restaurants in the road outside where you're working. Yeah. Still about half of them, maybe even slightly more than half, are parked outside that of the house or on the drive. But more than 40% now are in broad daylight and a goodly proportion are away from home. They are, as you say, in a hotel car park on the job as a supplier. Well, yeah, so brazen, isn't it? But I'm surprised at how easy it is to get into these vans as well. Again, one of these videos I was watching, it was, I think it was 20 seconds it took them to get into Ford's transit van. I've no idea of the age. I find it remarkable, Ray, that that these companies that sell these vans are not specialising in making it just harder to get into them in the first place. So is that an option? Is that is that changing in the market? Definitely a strand of work that Vanwatch will be working on. Load space security. So there's a, an organisation called the Thatcham organisation. You've probably seen this when you insure your car. It will ask if it's got a Thatcham approved immobiliser and locking system on it. Now that system's been around for a long time, but sadly it does not apply to the load spaces of commercial vehicles. So an area of work is to try and persuade the insurers through the Thatcham organisation to put pressure on the manufacturers to improve standards in load space security. Now, in fairness, a couple of manufacturers, Ford, who historically have had probably not the best record in terms of this type of security, mm. Ford and I believe Renault are leading the way with new vehicles. But of course, the vast majority of tradespeople are going to be in a vehicle. They're not going to be buying a new vehicle in the next year or so. They are stuck with the uh, the security. Unless they go for an aftermarket solution, stuck with the security that came with the vehicle they bought. Another plug for this podcast, if you're interested in electric vans, go and listen to the first episode, which we talked to a great guy called Paul Thorley, who talks in depth about electric vans and how that's going to change the market. I guess if you're leasing, you're probably get you could end up with something which has got that new technology in you're talking yeah. about, Ray. But you then start thinking about your standard secondhand transit or Renault van, which is probably going to be, I don't know, somewhere between five and ten years old. These things just go on forever, don't they? That, yeah, I think that's that secondhand van is probably bought from the ex-lease market. Yeah. So is there anything that people that own those vans can do? Are there aftermarket locks? Are there things you can do to secure your van to make it just, just a deterrent? There are a few things you can do. If you're in a position to take the tools indoors every night, I appreciate that's not feasible for everybody. But if you can, that at least will make it harder for that 50% or so that occur from outside your house at night for occurring. Aftermarket locks and alarms. A word of caution on the alarms is be careful not to play the hero. Your tools are valuable, but they're not worth getting stabbed for. So just be careful dashing out in the middle of the night to protect your van. But it does work as a deterrent. So do uh, secure storage uh, boxes in the van itself. So a van vault or an armor guard box of some sort. Although it does, these do require the discipline to actually put your tools in it and lock it, which add to the working day. And I, I appreciate if you've if you worked 14 hours, got home, maybe the van's full of rubbish from the job that you've just been doing. Yeah. Even getting access to the uh, yeah the van vault may not be easy. Par- parking in, if I was to go back a few years, I would say park it in a well lit area under a CCTV camera. From a lot of the footage that I've seen recently, that doesn't seem to be much of a deterrent. No. Anymore, but the brazenness of criminals is, uh, is is yeah amazing. The other thing I would say this won't stop it happening, but it may lessen the impact. Is 
check your insurance. So the majority of people do not insure their tools. A lot of people who think they have insurance, perhaps as a as an add-on to their van insurance or their household contents insurance, when push comes to shove, it turns out either that they don't, so the insurer doesn't pay out at all, or for instance, that it will demand proof of purchase. They have built up tools over the course of 20 years. You probably don't have receipt for it all. But check the, the small print of your tool insurance policy. And it's probably worth paying a little bit more to get better cover. Yeah, Those are my, my, my tips. But also add to it, and this is a, I mean, we talked about tool marking earlier. Don't buy secondhand tools. Uh, or at least if you do, be very careful and ask for proof of purchase. One of the things that came out in our survey is that and almost everybody accepts that the secondhand tool market is what fuels this crime. But 75% of people have or would consider buying secondhand tools. So yeah. we're going to destroy the economic logic of tool crime. We've got to be a great deal more careful yeah. buying secondhand tools. I think just from looking, that sort of change is beginning to happen, isn't it? So I know, for example, on Facebook Marketplace, you regularly see posts of just rooms and rooms full of tools, make me an offer type things. And they Facebook are pretty hot at getting rid of those quite quickly. I know yeah. eBay... Although if somebody was to go to eBay now and just type in secondhand tools, yes, you'll find it. But th- those sort of job lot quick sales seem to be, they seem to clamp down very quickly on that, which is good. I was going to tell you a story actually, Ray. So we had a, in the very early days of Powered Now, we had a brilliant customer who came to us, signed up for our app, but he hadn't quite got, he wasn't all in. He was using a bit here and there, but he was still living in his black book and everybody again, on this podcast can probably relate to the black book on the on the dashboard of the van. And he had his van broken into. He was in your good boy club and he actually took all of his tools out, devastated at the damage to the van. But actually the thing which really messed him up wasn't the tools that were stolen, but they stole that black book. It was on the dashboard and it was, it had everything, all of his contacts, all of his, who owed him money, the quotes he's been working on, going back years and years and years. I guess it's not just about the loss of tools. It's also other important things that could be in there. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and yeah. for a lot of people, if it's not the black book, if the phone went, it would, it would have the same effect, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So Ray, I've got a few more questions I want to ask you, but where can people learn about VanWatch? Okay, it's a very young organisation. We only launched it a couple of weeks ago. There is a website, www.vanwatch.org.uk. Um, that, that's still under development. It, it has content and it's, the buttons work, but we're still developing some of the content there. So that would probably be the best place to go. We're planning a launch to the, the end user base, the actual van driver themselves, in quarter two of next year. Brilliant. So at the moment, I'm building coalitions. Um, and if you like, this is a coalition of the willing to try and get some traction rather than it just be one bloke sat in Portsmouth making a fuss. <laughs> well, I think sh- shining a light on this stuff. I know there's some people have tried in the past and they haven't really broken through. Hopefully with this organisation, you can really sort of amplify the problem that this is having for these companies. There's been a fantastic piece of research done by an organisation called On The Tools They've done a white paper on tool crime from vehicles. If you if you visit the On the Tools website and download, that's available to download that on that site. It's very thorough, very detailed, and and I take my hat off to them. Well, what I do, I'll hunt for that and I'll stick it in the show notes. So if anybody listening wants to find that, I'll stick it down down below. And let me just ask quickly about Tool Angel from Williams. 
Yes. Uh, what, so is that's that's the service which is available to Williams customers, I'm guessing. No, it's available to any plumbing and heating engineer on the mainland of the UK. It's not restricted to Williams customers. It is a straightforward, no strings attached loan of a set of power tools, a flue gas analyzer, all wrapped up in a, an armor guard box, uh, available for a few weeks to victims of tool crime, just to, intended to keep them working. So of the three areas of loss I mentioned, financial loss, quite often the loss of work is as bad as the loss of tools or the damage to the yeah. vehicle. And particularly if you're in the middle of a contract, end users will be understanding, but if their major project gets badly held up, you know, you may not be the person they call next time. If, that, if there's long-term loss of business there, that's best avoided. Also, the, the psychological impact, I think, is the harm to emotional well-being is much greater for people who are sat around scratching their backsides because they've got nothing active they can do. I saw on the Williams website, Tool Angels, there in a link in the bottom. So if anybody listening to this wants to learn more about that, go to the Williams website and, and you can find it. Okay, right. I've got a couple more questions and then I'm going to let you go. I'll try and keep this podcast to about 30 minutes. Let's move on from Vanwatch. You've got decades of experience in the trade, right? You've been working in it for a long time. And I've got a bit of an interesting question. If you had a magic wand and you can use it to improve one aspect of the trade, what would it be? Well, Thanks very much, Ben, for giving me advance notice of that question. <laughs> it's a horrible so, question, I admit. It, it is, and I'm very glad that I had advance notice. So if I had to pick one thing, it would be to find a way of persuading tradespeople to spend one-tenth of the time that they spend acquiring, improving, and practicing their trade skills, their craft skills, spend one-tenth of that time on business skills. Uh, when I find businesses that struggle it is usually not always but it is usually for want of some fairly easy to acquire business skills and when I say fairly easy to acquire you still have to put a bit of effort into it but this is not rocket science uh, that would be my piece of advice if I could get to people before they go self-employed and persuade them just to spend a few weeks on that read a few books maybe go on a course or two yeah I'm coming from Powered Now, so I'm biased towards getting trade owners to digitize. And it might sound obvious, right? These are people who are, they're not sat behind a desk. They're in someone's house. They're driving that van. So it makes sense to digitize because you're everywhere. But I'm fascinated at the reluctance, actually. And I'm, I mentioned that black book that was stolen in that van. Yeah. That is still happening today. Now, there's been lots of legislation to try and force the hand. But... I'm curious to know. I agree with you. I think if actually spend a little bit, little bit of time learning how to quote, learning how to invoice, learning how to manage customers, that stuff is, you can't really, you can learn it over a period of time, but going in fresh is quite hard. If you had to pick one of those things that you should learn, what's the biggest factor that makes a trade company successful in us, do you think? Oh, that's a really interesting question, Ben. And I, I'm going to focus for a second, if I may, on the word successful, because I think most people go into business for one of two reasons. I'm talking about trades, self-employed tradespeople. So one motivation is summed up by, I, I would like to control my own time. I want to spend a bit more time with the family. Don't want to be on call at weekends. Can't stand the boss. All those sort of, I call them lifestyle businesses. 
And I see so many people who set out with that ambition and then suddenly a year or two later, they are invoicing late into the evening or quoting late into the evening, working at weekends, working ridiculous hours that they would have never tolerated when they had a boss. Now, this is somebody who went into business in order to spend more time with their family. And yet somehow the business has taken them over. So I think there is a definitely a role for digital tools in that side of the business, if for no other reason to get them to focus on why they went self-employed in the first place. The other group are the people who are ambitious to set up a business which they intend to grow. They probably want to get off the tools themselves. And for that sort of business, the formalization of processes is something that needs to go on very early and probably needs to be designed into the business model from scratch. And I think probably that's where an app like Powered Now really comes into its own. But they are two different types of business and success means different things depending on what you set out to do in the first place. Yeah, that's that's it. Yeah, that's a great answer. And absolutely, as you were saying that, I was thinking of people who definitely fall into those camps. I think there's probably a th- third sub-variant of that, which is the person that wants to spend more time at the golf course and not with the family. Mm-hmm. Because certainly the car park on a Friday afternoon at my local course, if you ever want any work doing, that's the place you go to find somebody, okay? Just anybody <laughs> listening to this. But okay, okay then, Ray, look, my, my final question for you. You've mentioned you've got some big things coming in Q2 for Van Watch, but what does the coming year look like for you? Getting used to being retired. So <laughs> officially retired a few weeks ago. Somehow I still seem to be working quite long hours. So my wife, bearing in mind the answer I gave to the previous question, that's quite ironic. But my wife is looking forward to me actually retiring, as she puts it. Although secretly, I think she probably likes me out from under her feet with my Williams hat on. Transition from day-to-day management, so I was the managing director for many years, to chairing the board is something I've got to do with great care and leave room for Martin Brown, my successor, to run the business on a day-to-day basis. And Vanwatch, of course, is only just taking off, so hopefully that will will get some traction in the new year, and it feels like a new career for me. So my wife probably won't have to put up with me after all. Well, as we've been talking, I've heard your email pinging away. So clearly, Ray, the, the, the idea of retirement hasn't quite squared with your inbox yet. Ray, thank you so much for appearing on the podcast. And as mentioned before, we're going to stick some links in the bottom for VanWatch. Thank you so much for your time, Ray. Thanks very much indeed, Ben. Been a pleasure being on the podcast. So thank you for listening to this episode of Adventures in Trade. As a reminder, Adventures in Trade is the podcast from Powered Now. We're giving away a free sum up card reader at the moment for anyone that listens to Adventures in Trade. Just head along to powerednow.com forward slash adventure. That's powerednow.com forward slash adventure. And I'll catch you on the next episode.